Hello, hello. Hello. Ah, right, there you are. Sorry. Um. Uh. Well, how are you? I'm well. I um been driving for a lot of hours today. I'm a little stiff, but other than that, things things are fascinating <laughs> as usual, and a bit unsettling as well. You dropped a hint that you were. Uh, like headed out west? I mean, do, do, do you mean west is in America or west uh, in somewhere other part of the world? I'm, I'm U.S. bound uh, this time. Uh, but yes, I did go um, southwest. I'm, I'm in Arizona, actually. I do love this landscape. Um, it's an, er- an area called Missive that I don't even think it's really technically a town but it's um, a bit outside of globe arizona no and idea <laughs> i don't know <laughs> any what 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 part of the what quadrant of the state is are we talking about here more or less the middle maybe a little north of that uh, but I, I just find this area um, i've been here before i find it very ghostly and just very uh there's something unique about it there's something always, always seems as if there's something blowing in on the wind or blowing out on the wind. So it's um, it's about 70 degrees here now, which was another incentive to come to this area. And what was the uh, the actual incentive for going there? Well, I began to speak some months back with um, a counselor. Uh, She's been talking to some people in this area. Uh, They've been meeting actually in these group sessions. And this kind of issue, she told me it first started with one man who came to her. And uh, this man had gone through a trauma. Uh, And he'd he'd been in a holdup that turned violent. And um, so since then, he was noticing his behavior was changing kind of involuntarily in these surprising ways, you know, which makes sense, right? A, you know, trauma response, and you, you don't really know how it's going to end up affecting your mind and body and daily rhythms, and, you know, you, uh, and that, that can change. That can change over time. But uh, these were kind of remarkable behaviors. He started to sleep with a nightlight which he hadn't done since he was very young and um, he began to be afraid of his closet Um, again uh, that had not plagued him for for many many years and you know the space under his bed seemed seemed ominous and full of Full of terrifying surprises, and he even said that he started walking in a peculiar way, like skipping cracks on the sidewalk. And um, it was like, even though since the trauma, he 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 knows his uh, appetite has changed, he began having difficulty eating on the one hand, but then on the other hand, he was terribly uncomfortable 
not eating everything he'd prepared. He needed to clean his plate. He had he had a great deal of anxiety if he did not do that. And she tried to really get him to think about what these particular behaviors meant to him and where they might have come from. After a couple of weeks, he told her that he he realized that these were details from childhood, right, from stories that, oh, he heard from his parents, usually, and other adults in the world, you know, babysitters, uh, you know, the, the lies that adults tell children uh, to, to either, you know, instill a protective fear in them that they don't, as children, naturally yet possess, or sometimes it's a lazy tactic to you know, keep them in line or uh, make them behave with some sort of uh, invented external uh, motivator with fear. And, um, you know, he remembers things like this, you know, if you get up out of bed too many times in the night, the man under the bed will get you. Or, you know, if you don't clean your plate, God will know you're ungrateful and won't, won't provide anymore for you. After this revelation, this patient started to see physical evidence that something was in his house. Um, there were things, he said he first noticed that he, he would lose track of items and he actually would find them under his bed, like pulled under the bed. Um, and there was actually even a little, a little hole made in the bottom of the mattress that he found a couple of the smaller objects like keys and his watch up in that hole in the mattress. And uh, the closet, he said the closet was the worst. There were these scratch marks around the, the frame of the door and along the floorboards inside of it. And he lived alone? Yes, and so his environment to get more and more frightening but he he told her that that he wasn't the only one who'd been experiencing these particular kinds of things you know these these resurfacing of these items of lore from childhood uh, a puzzle she's still trying to solve is like how are these how are these things arriving you know like are are they manifestations separate from the patients or are they coming through them somehow, you know, into the world? And why are they resurfacing now you know, when they, when they're no longer needed, really? Have they become needed once again for some reason? Lots of memories in here she wrote. I'm afraid I'm not making much progress with the boxes. I found something here. I want to tell you about it. I used to sneak out in the middle of the night, she wrote. School nights, too, because it felt more thrilling, I guess. I had a very intense friendship with a girl who lived across the field. She had red hair and these funny canine teeth that were set up sort of high, and she could smile in a strange way so that just those were showing. It used to make me laugh. We spent a lot of time together, which felt right. 
and it was all we wanted on some days. But I think now it wore us down, too. A clatter behind her made her jump, the ice maker. She'd forgotten that about the house. Her mother had liked to fill big jars with it and pour bubbly water between the cubes. We loved the awesome quiet, so different from the quiet at 10 p.m. or even midnight. We'd go out at 3.30, 4 o'clock. The moon was out. It was before the papers were delivered, before the sprinklers came on. We'd meet in the dugout of the baseball field or up on the little bleachers. And we looked out into the dark and we talked and told stories and tried to frighten each other. That was really the point of it all, to be scared. It was our favorite thing. I tried to describe something to her then. I reached and scraped for it, but couldn't remember. Just that I read it somewhere. I could only remember it was a monster, that it was tall and sharp and gray, and it was easy to imagine out there on those nights, running around the bases or tumbling along the weeds and brambles along the back of the fences from my street. It came from somewhere, and I found it here, and I need to write it down now. I feel like something is going to happen tonight in this house, and then it will be too late. And I was wrong about the color. It was red, not gray. Here it is. The story of Little Suck-a-Thumb. One day, Mama said, Conrad, dear, I must go out and leave you here. But mind now, Conrad, what I say. Don't suck your thumb while I'm away. The great tailor always comes to little boys who suck their thumbs. And ere they dream what he's about, he takes his great sharp scissors out and cuts their thumbs clean off. And then, you know, they never grow again. Mama had scarcely turned her back. The thumb was in. Alack, alack. The door flew open. In he ran, the great, long, red-legged scissor man. Oh, children, see, the tailors come and caught our little suck-a-thumb. Snip, snap, snip, the scissors go. And Conrad cries out, oh, oh, oh. Snip, snap, snip, they go so fast that both his thumbs are off at last. Mama comes home. There Conrad stands and looks quite sad and shows his hands. Ah, said Mama, I knew he'd come to naughty little suck It terrified me as a kid, the pictures. Imagine telling a child a story like this. The night was crackling around the house. Thunder speckled and fed and drenched and raised over the distant wheat. Electric clouds burst on the horizon under a thick purple soak of sky. Freaked out birds slashed and pinioned by cable wires. She wrote, Did you ever think that where we start is where we end up? I don't know if I believe that. But I've heard things in the attic. And a storm's coming in. And if I go lost, I know you'll be the one who looks for me. You know, I grew up in the <laughs> the age of advertising. You know, um, 
the programming, maybe it's still the same now, but it seemed like there were a lot of stories based in people making these kinds of physical transformations, you know, ter- being able to morph into an animal of some kind or, you know, having magical powers and, and being able to change themselves physically to, to, to best uh, take advantage of their situation or to elude danger um, or to just, you know, play tricks. Um, I remember being particularly vulnerable to advertising messages that were just, you know, they were humorously exaggerated, but I would take them very literally. And things like that would scare me. Like, I think first I remember the thing about, you know, don't swallow your gum, it'll stay in your intestines for seven years or whatever, you know, (laughs) wherever that came from. You know, I remember that, you know, anything physical like that frightened me. And also the thing, don't make faces, your face will stick that way. Don't cross your eyes, they'll, they'll, they'll freeze. Don't pop your knuckles because you'll get big, you'll get big hands like a man. And um, I remember getting some candy in a, in a little store. We were on vacation and it was something, it was a little like cello bag with some Oh, I don't know, some, some little sour candies in it. And it, it, it was called something to do with vampires. And it, it, the candy came with a little plastic set of, of vampire teeth. But it suggested that if you ate the candy, uh, you would actually grow these teeth. And I really literally believed that. I was fascinated and enticed. And I wanted to eat the candy, but I just couldn't face the idea of living with this with this horrifying physical alteration for the rest of my life, I had to be talked down <laughs> that one. And I remember things like, you know, certain tennis shoes, you know, say, oh, you can jump. You t- put these on and you'll turn into a puma and you'll jump. You can jump several stories high. You know, I, I believed that. And, and uh, <laughs> I just, you know, I, I, it's funny how you take in these details and suggestions and whatever you're kind of working with at the time, um, you know, however the, the world has shaped you or not shaped you, that's the lens through which, you know, you, you, you see all these, all these things. I think it can be very frightening and very overwhelming. Yeah, I, um, I remember uh, an incident when I was a little kid. Uh, I seem to remember that I was seven, uh, and I used to play with toy soldiers a lot, actually all alone, uh, in, in, in my backyard, kind of a lonely kid. And, uh, one day, uh, my father was kind of getting on me about cleaning up my toys. Um, and I know he, he wanted to try to, you know, to get me to, to be more disciplined and he said a little thing which was odd. He said, "Oh, you know, if you don't if you don't put your toy soldiers away, they could get ambushed at night." It was just that one sentence. And but for some reason that that word ambushed it became this magical word, this sort of terrifying word in my mind. I vaguely knew the concept. But I was frightened of my toy soldiers becoming ambushed at night because of my irresponsibility. I didn't really know what that meant, but these images of them getting slaughtered, these things I had fondness for, it just wouldn't leave me. And uh, 
you know, I, I tried, you know, I, I did my best. I was seven years old, but I was, I was a, a sloppy kid. I, I, I you know, I, I didn't clean up my room. I didn't put my toys away. And often I left my, oh, I had about 20 or 30 toy soldiers. I just left them laying around after I played with them. And then one night I woke up in the middle of the night in my dark room and I, I, I had to go to the bathroom. I had to go to the bathroom really bad. I got up and through the dark, I made my way down the hall to the bathroom. I turned on the light and I went in. And I saw something in the bathtub. I looked in and, and all of my toy soldiers were lying scattered in the bottom of the bathtub with maybe a half inch of water throughout. And I had been playing with them in, in, in the dirt that very day and, and the water had mixed with the mud and it was creating these, these horrible brown streaks in the bottom of the bathtub, but they were scattered everywhere, some of them face down. And I remember gasping, something horrible happened to my toy soldiers. They had been slaughtered there in my bathtub. And it didn't occur to me then that what my father had warned me about was, was true, but I, I think I, I thought that on some subconscious level. And it turned out that my mother had simply gone out and picked up all my toy soldiers and decided to wash them in the bathtub, just leaving them in there to soak overnight so they would be clean for me. But basically just because of what my father had said and that magic word and that one image he'd instilled in my mind, it created that terrifying, heart-stopping moment. And I still, I still have that image in my mind of, of, of my poor toy soldiers decimated, slaughtered, in the bottom of my bathtub. Five twelve Curlew Street, the gray blue house with the brown trim. A woman steps on a fuzzy bee, inching across the linoleum of the kitchen. Worse than the pain that comes quickly and just immediately is its own thing, is in and of itself is the bee's scary panic buzz and flail in the ways its body feels beneath the ball of her foot. She doesn't plan on telling her son about a monster that lives in the backyard, and she's not proud of herself for doing it. But she's tired and rough-sanded down from a hard month, and she's sick of repeatedly asking him to slide the screen door closed. Somehow he just won't or forgets. And he runs in and out to the backyard with his little friends or the little dog. And as she ices her foot in the living room, putting the soul down into it and feels the hard ache of the cold creep up into her bones, making her leg ache, her son comes in smiling and crashing and sits on the sofa next to her. He says he's hungry, nearly involuntarily, she says it. She hadn't wanted to tell him this, but since he refuses to listen to her and won't shut the door, she would have to now. She tells him about the monster out there, out there in the yard, and that it can't come inside the house unless the door is open, and it's out there day and night, and sooner or later it would come in, and it eats the bones of people, especially children, and crushes them between its teeth. 
And then a worse thing happens. Because her son stops and gets wide-eyed, gets concerned. He asks her, can it come in windows too? The basement? She thinks of his big fear now, the sleepless nights ahead. And still, in a remarkable lapse of self-control, of doubling down, of revenge maybe too a little bit, she hears herself saying, yes, sometimes. She looks away from him to the television, where a house is getting painted and gutted, transformed. Later, up on Waxwing Place, Jenna Smith and Michael Sauer open the front door and step gingerly down to a pillow of grass. Jenna's parents are gone for a few days, and the couple have swallowed some paper squares of acid and want to be outside. It is now dark, and popping clouds of gnats and mosquitoes roil up at the orangey streetlights like schools of churning fish. She doesn't want to see any neighbors. So she takes his hand and leads him through a secret tunnel through the trees. This way, she says back to him. And her head turns so perfect and raw that he thinks for a moment she's an angel. It sounds wrong to say that he knows there in the night that he will marry her. And he knows there in the trees he will fail her. But there's just no way in the entire world that he can stop it from happening. She leads him out to some bike trails deep furrowed by the last rain, where the water came down in streams, and then to a little coulee, and it seems they had come a long way in just a few short minutes. This is where it lives, she says. Who lives? he asks, feeling his lips meet strangely in his face. What? lives. They move closer to a little cave in the rocks. They have no flashlight, but somehow can see far and wide in the moon. When I was a kid, they used to say, if you lied, it would come out and take things from you. Every time you lied, it would take something. Like, it could take your bike from the garage, or just something like a piece of jewelry. Even sometimes your dog or cat. Something crosses her face. They used to say, he repeats. The hill sighs out at spiders and wolves. Who? he asks her. She puts her arms around him. Everyone, she says. Corner of Magpie and Grosbeak, but moving northwest. There is a fungus among us, his mother crows. He and his parents get in the car and head out. He loves going out to the woods with him. He likes carrying the basket and looking down at the creeping plants and the snarling roots of tall trees. His mother and father wear big, wide-brimmed hats that cinch up under their chins with bees. He likes the dank smell of the morning and the way the dew clings to his legs and shoes. Since he is closer to the ground, he has the most important job, they tell him. He takes this very serious. He sings and asks questions and calls out the things he knows, the names they taught him. But today his parents seem more tired and slow than usual, 
he notices. And as they step and peer and pull up fans of leaves to look under, he remembers that he got up in the night once, and it was very late and they were still awake, talking in their room. He tiptoed back to bed and forgot. Shh, his father says now to him. You'll scare the mushrooms away. He is quiet then, and something changes. He begins to think of them moving, the pale white and buff colors of them, sliding slimily through the black soil and up over rocks. He imagines them carnivorous, having stomachs and teeth, and their thrive in and love of the dark, the hidden, the rot. He knows they have gills like a fish, and if there are eyes, they are blank like that, flat and gone. After this morning, he will refuse to eat them, and will no more for his whole indeterminate life. But this weekend, as of yet uninformed in his new fear of them and disgust, he wishes for more mushrooms there because his parents do, because their patience that day is thin. And finding the elusive caps is a game that just then they don't want to play. He doesn't know how to wish for more rain. But he tries for them. When they return home, he looks in a book of magic spells and waves a forked stick out over the sick sweet, heady lilies by the fence. I can imagine wanting, for instance, to instill a fear, a fear of strangers in, in your child. But the schedule on which your your child might actually just kind of naturally adopt these fears uh, on their own might not be the schedule that you are comfortable with. And I just think, you know, in order to instill a a protective fear in the child that they a self-protective fear that they don't yet have in them I, I, I'm sure that the temptation is is there to kind of rush things along I'm sure in some cases too these uh, things could be gestures of, kind of passive-aggressive punishment or spite you know parents uh, bless them are not, are not above things like that but you know it it wasn't always them that were bringing us these terrors. I think we kids sort of created them for themselves. Uh, I'm thinking back. We had in our neighborhood, every neighborhood has this house in it. It's the slightly darker house that's on the corner. Just for, for whatever reason, it has properties, maybe an overgrown lawn, or maybe there's never a car in the driveway, or it, it's, it's a... It's a dark brown color where all the other houses are lighter. And it just starts to get a reputation among the kids. That's the bad house. And therefore, there's someone evil who lives there. There's an old weird man who lives there. And in my neighborhood, this was Mr. Emmett's house. Mr. Emmett. I don't know where the name came from even. Um, But allegedly, this Mr. Emmett who lived in the dark house, the big, dark, spooky house on the corner... Well, he was a child killer. Mr. Emmett, don't go near that house. Mr. Emmett, 
he's a child killer. And this was the 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 line that went through the the kids. Like where, where this came from, I think it had no validity. I'd never heard anything. Never, you know, my my passing uh, awareness of the news of the outside world when I was ten years old. There was nothing. It, it simply was the the properties of the house that instilled this legend. And maybe this Mister Emmett. Maybe he had said something. I don't know cross to some child someday. Some kid went on his lawn and then suddenly he was the child killer. Even even at a young age, I thought this was ridiculous. Mr. Emmett, I, I, I didn't know. <laughs> what, what is this child killer? Then something kind of odd happened. Uh, I'm not even sure when in the timeline this really happened. I remember being in my house. It was raining out. It was the afternoon. My father was home from work fairly early, and I, I heard him and my mother exchanging words in the kitchen, back and forth, a long conversation. And I, I remember hearing my father saying at one point, I'm going over there. I'm going over there, very insistently. And my mother was saying, don't, don't do that. And he walked out of the house, and I, I, I found myself going out after him. I wasn't supposed to, I'm sure. And it was raining, but I, I kind of followed him out. And I remember the, the wind was whipping up, and I think a storm was coming. And he walked past our car, and he started walking down the street toward the, the corner of it, which was several hundred yards in the distance, right down the middle of the road. No umbrella, no nothing. He, it's like he didn't know a storm was coming. The wind was getting kind of scary. And that's the direction where Mr. Emmett's house was. And he was walking and walking. And then I heard my mother saying, what are you doing? Come back inside the house. You're going to get soaked. What are you doing out in the storm? And I ran back to her. And I went inside the house. And I, to this day, I never knew where my father went. I never really knew where he was going. I never asked any questions afterward. And um, I, you know, he came back shortly after that. And it was never, never spoken of again. And sometimes I think back to the kids I used to play with on that street. I don't know any of them anymore, of course. To me, they're long gone. You know, was it possible that there was some kind of truth that eluded me back then that did not elude them? That makes me uh, think of a friend of mine while describing her uh, childhood in Connecticut, uh, she said that any time there was any kind of a, a cautionary yarn uh, spun for some reason, uh, you know, with, with, which culminated in, of course, the, the death or dis and or destruction of the child, uh, it, it was always this mysterious, uh, it was always a kid from North Haven. That was the place, the like, you know how here in the U.S. we have, uh, oh, usually when you tell jokes, um, they can be very interchangeable. It's basically like insert the name of, of your neighboring state here, and, you know, they're the butt of all the jokes. This is a similar thing in that the kid from North Haven always, always uh, had all of the terrible things happen to him. It was a kid from North Haven, a boy or a girl. It didn't matter. There was always, you know, a, a, a 
did you hear about the kid from North Haven? Yes, yes, we had the same thing. It was, <laughs> but but our town was called Mount Brent, and it was always something. Something happened to, oh, the, this kid. You know, oh yeah, he lived in Mount Brent, and so then this happened to him. It was always Mount Brent. Yes. And it's always a town that's just about ooh, 20 miles away, just just outside the the knowledge radius of a typical kid. It's, it's, it's far enough away. You can't walk there. Um, it, it, it's just outside. It's like whenever, um, oh, you know, you hear those other stories about I, a, a, a cousin of a friend or a friend of a friend got killed or run over by the bus or they cut off their hand because they wouldn't. They, they reached in one of the, the, the candy machine, or, you know. Um, it's always that, I think that's the key, too, is, like, it, it, it's rendered maddeningly unverifiable. It, it's not a huge distance away, but it's just enough between you and it that um, you, you're, uh, you're, you're not going to ask uh, too many questions. The kid from North Haven sits in a room. Today the room is drawn in thick black waxy lines and has a pillow, a bed, and a nightstand with a little blue glass of water. This is lucky. Sometimes there's nothing in the room but a desk or a chair and the size of everything, especially the chair, can vary wildly. Sometimes it's too small and painful to use. Sometimes it's too big and makes the kid from North Haven feel minute and precious, like nothing can be changed, like he's all set, all decided from somewhere else, which is actually true. It's a paper world, a pen and crayon world, he gets smashed by the bus or drowned in the shower with a plug drain. His face gets frozen and his eyes stick and his head gets cut off by the fence by the school. His death repeats, folds in. It pedals down the dark street. It's all the same to the kid from North Haven. He curls inadvisedly into dumped refrigerators into abandoned, deep freezers. And he gets locked in and it takes his breath. He is a lesson, a pinch hitter, a bad danger dream. Sometimes he's drawn a TV and he looks at it, sees the ghosts and knives and the radioactive mutations from the sea. His mouth opens wide. He apes the smoking in the long coats. Dames, says the kid from North Haven. But he doesn't know any dames. He lets the pretend matches burn out on the blank floor. He lets the flames die on his knuckles like heat. The kid from North Haven dies all the time. 
It's supposed to be sad. Sad that he dies in pain. Sad that he loses his lives, as though they were actual lives to be mourned. Being scared is supposed to make you real. But there's nothing. He'd like to stay put on the earth for a while. But that's not what he's for. These days, he both hopes there is and hopes there is not a window in the room. A window with a red or yellow sun. And he can look out on the town of North Haven. If it's really there at all. And think of all the planets and all the stars and all of space.